Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today, we discuss what I believe to be a landmark book and an astonishing achievement, The Well-Gardened Mind, subtitled The Restorative Power of Nature, written by Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith, who is both a gardener and a psychiatrist. The utility and value of this book cannot be overemphasized, given the pressurized and frankly pathogenic or illness-inducing lifestyles that many of us lead today often while being quite detached from nature or source. The Well-Gardened Mind, already highly acclaimed, is a work that both educates and delights, a cornucopia of facts, stories, anecdotes, and possibility. Like gardening itself, it opens up the mind and the heart, the beauty being that nature need not explain herself. She just exists and prevails. In other words, nature simply works. But more than all the above, the well-gardened mind is also a rare and durable gift, all the while gently prodding one towards a better self. And I suspect that I, for one, shall always view not only gardens, but also mental equilibrium through more expansive and more grateful eyes. Here is a brief bio of Dr. Stuart Smith's accomplishments. She is a prominent psychiatrist and psychotherapist who took a degree in English literature at Cambridge University before qualifying as a doctor. She worked in the National Health Service for many years, becoming the lead clinician for psychotherapy in Hertfordshire. She currently teaches at the Tavistock Clinic in London and is a consultant to the Doc Health Service in the United Kingdom. She is married to Tom Stuart Smith celebrated garden designer and with over 30 years together they have created the wonderful barn garden in Hertfordshire. Dr. Stuart Smith, Sue, welcome to Healthscape. I am so very glad to have you here with us today. I'm very pleased to be able to join you today Trevor. Good. So a good place to start um, Sue is to ask you, when you decided to write this book, what was your either your main intention or your main intentions? Well, that's a very good question, because I think I had a number of different um, intentions and actually a number of different inspirations as well. Um, you know, the most immediate personal experience was my own, was recognizing that as I had become more senior in my work as a psychiatrist in the NHS. And, and I, I, I'd reached a point in the last five or six years of my career where I was the lead, the lead clinician for, for the whole county of Hertfordshire, um, was that really that if I didn't spend some time gardening at the weekend, I could feel the stress beginning to accumulate. Um, so, and I sort of just began to notice a bit more um, the effects on my own mind. And I was curious about that, curious about how it cleared my mind, allowed my mind to wander in quite a helpful way. Um, 
but but above all, sort of, I would return return to the house, sort of feeling a sense of accomplishment and a, a sort of sense of calm and calm and often often sort of maybe tired, but revitalized as well. Yeah, good tired. So, so that was that was the good tired. Yeah, that was that was one level, I suppose, of um, intention uh, was to to build on that. And I and one of the things I try to do in the book is really explore um, to try to put into words how gardening is influencing us, because of course it is a an entirely non-verbal activity, mm-hmm. and and that means sometimes it gets a little bit trivialized and and therefore not taken seriously so I wanted to kind of unpack it and so I did spend quite a lot of time really focusing and noticing my own experiences as well as interviewing quite a lot of people and there there are you know those their stories and and some of the the quotations uh from them are are in the book right so I wanted to illuminate it and and through doing that um you know, uh, prompt, prompt a kind of more serious interest in it, um, right. and yeah, bec- and and then explore the different therapeutic avenues really. Because as a psychiatrist, I was interested in the different applications as well as how it can help all of us. You know, regardless of whether we have a mental illness or not. Right. Um, and in doing that, I was very inspired by my own grandfather's story. He had grown up hearing how, from my mother how he had uh, been captured as a very young man in Turkey in the early part of the First World War. And he'd spent the rest of the war in, as a prisoner of war in Turkey in a series of what were brutal labour camps. Mm-hmm. And that he'd arrived home at the end very, very malnourished, very sick, um, and very traumatized. Right. And it was it was really when he got the chance to um, to attend a horticultural rehabilitation program in 1920. It was a 12 month program, one of many that was set up after the war. Actually, um, and that that his life really got onto a different footing. He recovered his health, and and it gave him a lifelong love of gardening. And he he died in his early 70s when I was about 12. Wow, so very direct, very direct uh, relationship, both you and through family, um, and, and testimony to the healing power of nature in general, and a garden in specific, specifically. Um, yeah, that, that comes through very powerfully in the book. And uh, it, it, it was interesting to me that people in 1920 had the foresight to actually not just talk about it, but actually arrange, uh, uh, you know, arrange this at a time two years after the end of the war, where I would have suspected resources were pretty frail, to put it mildly. So that's an excellent story. Uh, well, I think, I think, it, I think the bir- it really marks the birth of horticultural therapy, although they didn't call it that, and they regarded it as a more as a vocational training. Yeah. Um, I think it was also born out of the scale of destruction yes. and the scale of trauma and, and a recognition that it seemed to be the one thing that helped people was either working on farms or working in gardens. You know, having suffered, think about the soldiers in the trenches who incidentally, as I write in the book, 
actually turned to gardening in the trenches themselves right. uh, on the western front. That was um, most interesting, I thought. Yeah. So, so there is a very interesting relationship between war and gardening, actually, and the recovery from right. uh, conflict, conflict, and um, various forms of disasters through returning to the land. I think coming back to our roots coming back to the sort of origins yeah. of life, you know, creating new life through gardening. It's an instinctual return to source, right? Uh, I think it is, actually. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's been called urgent biophilia uh, in order to sort of reflect that, that, that it does seem, you know, it's been mapped out in many different parts of the world uh, following natural disasters as well, um, yeah. that, that people seem to as you say, almost instinctively turn to nature. And that brings me to my next point, which was throughout the book. Um, there's this theme of nature being um, an intermediary or facility to a uh, facilitator, rather, in helping one reconnect not only with others, but with life itself. And in the case of psychological disorder, um, possibly one's pre previous or earlier pre-pathological state. Um, it does this apparently by opening one up and being more collaborative and accepting the fact that we are seldom ever in control of anything. Uh, if you could expand on that, please, Sue. Yes, I, I think I think your account of it as as a sort of in between, in that sense, is is absolutely right, um, and that there is. There is in one way a bit of a paradox, I think, because a garden um, offers a sanctuary yes, uh, yes. so it can be a retreat, uh, but it's not an escape from life. No. Uh, not a total escape from life. It, it actually puts us in touch with deep existential truths about life, about the transience of life, about the continuity of life, mm -hmm. um, the origins of, of life. You know, we... Every, you know, life on this planet depends on the growth of plants. Um, uh, so, so it can, through doing that, it can, as you suggest, sort of lead people back into life. You know, people who've been so battered or scarred or traumatized um, that life feels too complex, too difficult, too frightening. Right. And particularly other people may feel all those things. Yes. Um, and, and I think the respite from the complexity of interpersonal relating is one of the great benefits of gardening. Mm -hmm. you are, you're still nurturing something, you're attending to it, you're noticing, um, but it doesn't, plants don't judge you. Um, you know, they, they, they don't have Freud liked to say flowers have neither conflicts nor emotions. And, and this, is, this is enormously helpful, but it can eventually lead people back. It can sort of strengthen their ability to, to relate. Um, not always, but it can do. So, yes. so it, it, is, it can be a mediator, as you suggest. Um, right. And I found that I, that came across very powerfully in the interviews that I did on uh, Rikers Island in, in the jail with yeah. some of the prisoners there and, and, and the men and the women I spoke to 
and really quite a high number of them flagged up in their in their you know in their accounts of what they were getting from the garden uh the fact that plants couldn't judge them and and that they didn't sort of they didn't feel shame um no. they weren't having to think about what is this what does this person think of me you know how are they judging me um and and so that return to a, a simpler form of relating is enormously helpful for certain people at certain times of life. Right. But I think actually for all of us today, you know, we are so immersed in mm-hmm. endless forms of, 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 you know, interpersonal relating, human relating, um, you know, our working lives and all everything that happens on the web and, and digital media and, you know, whether it's Twitter or Facebook and, you know, texting and so on, that we're, we, 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 we're constantly having to interpret what other people mean and what are they thinking of us. So I think, I think all of us can benefit a little bit from having that, a respite from that. Yeah, and there's also, of course, the consistency of plants. Their bandwidth is... <laughs> is narrower for us to overthink about and to yes. room on, right? Yeah. Um, now, a sizable number of our listeners either have chronic pain or are close to someone with chronic pain. And I have long recommended gardening as a physical activity in chronic pain where possible. But now in reflection and having read your book, I am more than ever convinced that all the tick boxes are nearly <laughs> full for a healthy activity, outdoors, out nature, sunshine, at least for part of the year, uh, hopefully, and um, the and and the physicality of everything, getting down to the basics. I think this is there's something very resonant about that. In fact, there's a lot of things very resonant about that. So gardening's not merely a distraction. And distractions, as we know, are helpful with chronic pain management, but it's a creative pursuit which together with cooking, are probably, globally speaking, our most widespread forms of artistic expression. Now, we also know that creativity helps with chronic pain because it has almost a transcendental effect on a person. They create something, um, there's something to show for it, and it takes them out of suffering. And um, But most of all, it struck me that, you know, gardening slows one down. There's, there's nature time, season time, garden time. And you can't rush a garden. <laughs> so um, part of the pathology is that the life, the expectation is so unrealistic that we're supposed to keep up. That's with innumerable websites and search engines and devices and stuff and just cram it in. There's no apparent respite. So it slows you down gardening very much like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness meditation. So one has to ask, and I ask this myself regularly, just living too fast is obviously pathogenic and not good for your health. Well, yes, no, I think that's right. We need we need to sort of take our foot off the pedal from time to time for right. sure. Uh, and I think there's a sort of, you know, we live in a culture of overwork, actually, um, right. and, and high levels of burnout. High levels of chronic stress, uh, and and I think gardening is extremely good for all of that. Yeah. I think there are many different ingredients to it, and and yes, slowing down is part of that. Um, the sense of um, uh, 
sort of being part of something larger than yourself, which many people experience in the garden, mm-hmm. you know, feeling connected to the web of life, one's right. awareness in, in the garden that you're one of, one of many, many inhabitants of the garden um, and the pleasures you can take in the birds that visit it and the, right. the insects and, and so on. So, so I think that's very helpful. I think beauty itself is enormously important and mm-hmm. beauty is really a form of emotional nourishment. You know, the, the neuroscience of beauty is very interesting and, and of course there are other sources of beauty apart from natural beauty, but, but gardens, you know, when, certainly when they're in bloom, are, are a very, very concentrated dose of beauty. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, that was something that Freud recognised and he was... You know, the, the, he suffered from severe chronic pain for the last 16 years of his life, having had a tumour removed from his mouth and, and had a large part of his jaw taken out. And he had a me- mechanical device made for him that formed the lower part of his jaw. And it gave him a lot of trouble. And he had to have a lot of revisions to the surgery and so on. And he's had infections. Um, so he suffered a great deal from chronic pain. And the garden get, was, was really his great solace. Mm-hmm. He once said, um, beauty cannot uh, protect you from suffering, but it can compensate for a great deal. Yeah, it kind of transports one. Yeah, it's being taken out of yourself in that moment, mm-hmm. I think. And Absolutely. there is that, that, that experience of, uh, you know, it's as if the boundary of ourself falls away a little bit in that moment of, of, of feeling at one with something beautiful and and we feel nourished by it yeah which which leads me to my next point I, I recently did a healthscape episode on spirituality and, and chronic pain together and this was not an interview and how uh, spirituality itself has become somewhat devalued in westernized more consumeristic societies and the two outstanding features of spirituality people generally agree on. Number one, it's got to have a connection with something higher than ourselves, perhaps our higher selves. And secondly, a search for meaning, but not the ordinary kind of meaning, the universal type transcendent meaning, um, you know, like that goes beyond any single individual's life. And therefore, it's not a stretch to say, in my view, and, and I'm interested in hearing yours, it, it is a spiritual and transcendental, transcendental experience. And the other interesting thing was when I was preparing for this, I, I realized that you know, I'm in my seventh um, decile, and nobody ever has asked me in my presence, or, or what's the point of nature, what's the meaning of nature? But many people have asked what the meaning or the point of life is. Um, the existentialists, to, to, to name a group. But um, I, it, it shows that our respect for nature is, it suggests to me, I don't know that it shows it, but it suggests to me that our innate respect for nature transcends our own existence. Like we seem to be quite happy with the idea of us not being here, but so we question our lives, but we 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 accept that nature must go on. Uh, there's some, I mean, it needs work, I, I would agree. Yeah, but. No, no, but to, I think what you're saying is, um, is in a way uh, 
quite close to what Robert Lifton, the psychiatrist, uh, who wrote about um, how people uh, come to terms with 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 death and with dying, um, both themselves and and close people close to them, and um, he 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 identified our need for a form of symbolic survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he believed that without some, 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 some form of symbolic survival that we can hold on to, that actually people are, are, are unable to mourn. So there's a sort of paradox there in a way that, right. you, you know, you have to feel something will live on, um, but that, that knowledge that something will live on, that there is something greater, um, yeah. helps, you, helps you actually face the reality of, mortal, of, of mortality. Uh, and and that you know, symbolic survival can take many different forms. It may be through, you know, having having offspring, having children. You know, your genes living on. It may be through creativity, through artworks, and and so on, through other yeah. accomplishments in life. Yeah. It may be you know belief in the afterlife. But mm-hmm. the most, the one he identified as being the most universal. Um, what is was through nature was was people get most consolation uh, uh, and most feeling of symbolic survival um, and the continuity of life through through the natural world. You know that that something will live on after them, and and you know this is one of the reasons why we so often plant a tree to as a memorial to someone who's died. Right. For example, and and you know, flower flowers are very much part of the whole ritual of, right. of funerals as well, aren't they? So, so I think the natural world is is crucial actually to us in terms of coming coming to terms with and grappling with these deep existential issues. Mm-hmm. And you know, you asked me at the beginning about what I what I wanted to achieve in the book, and I think that was. That was one thing that I did want to achieve because I think there is there is something, you know, on the one hand about gardening that is is very practical and earthy and getting your hands in the mud and you know, uh, you know, kind of play. It's kind of adult form of play in some ways as well. Um, uh, but but you know, so on one level, it's quite sort of physical and you know, you build up a sweat and. Um, so there's a toil element to it, but there is, as you're intimating, this other element which is more transcendental. Right. And and I've had moments myself in the garden. It, often they're fleeting moments, just a feeling of very deep connection to life. And I, you know, I documented some of the other people's experiences that I interviewed in the book. Um, and they took different forms. You know, some of them described them as spiritual, some of them didn't. But yes. they were yeah. all really talking about the same the same kind of thing. A feeling of deep connection with life. Yeah, they may not, might have been fleeting, but they maintained connectivity. I guess yeah, so. I mean they're they're fleeting, and they uh, but they they live in the memory. Correct. Yes. So you know that they they have great meaning. Um, coming back to chronic pain, one of the greatest challenges is usually the ongoing focus on chronic pain that needs to be somehow shifted or edged towards a focus more on functionality and quality of life. Of course, way easier said than done always. In the case of gardening, the focus is on nature and growth, which is obviously enriching and sustaining. But gardening, apart from being a compelling distraction, when we talk in terms of distraction, 
and of course it's so much more from chronic pain, it requires patient attention, which also just happens to be the bedrock of all forms of mastery when one thinks about it. Gardening allows for personal growth and the development of progress. It's obvious is obvious to the eye. Now, while the other things we recommend, like a 30-minute walk or those with chronic pain who can still jog uh, or swim, though helpful and enjoyable, they often regard it as a chore by the, by the patient. Do you find that those who take up gardening to treat psychiatric illness or mental illness, depression and anxiety, for example, are more likely to stick with it than other activities in your experience? I think if people get the bug, yes. I mean, gardening isn't for everybody, um, but but usually when people do do get into it, uh, yes. they do stick at it. You know, it's very compelling, um, and there's always new things to try growing. There's a lot to learn. Um, you know, uh, I always recommend people start with very simple, easy, easy, straightforward plants to grow. But then you know, once you become confident, you can try out new things so it's it's great from that point of view that you can you know if you, if you like reading and new learning you know you can you can really get into you can spend your winters kind of reading seed catalogs and or right. books about plants that you're interested in so it, even if you when you can't get out in the garden it can be very compelling as an activity as well um well, yeah, uh, thank you for that because I w my grand lived with us when I was growing up and she encouraged us to have a garden. And I was all over the place as a young person and uh, as a child. And she took one look at me and she said, you're doing radishes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's, it's, it's the sort of like survival deluxe uh, plant type or something. Anyway, uh, but I, I will say that... There's nothing wrong with radishes. I love radishes. Uh, <laughs> I grow radishes. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, they are good. And, and yeah, they general, are good. <laughs> and they grow very fast. And they're very, they're very satisfying in that way. Have you ever had them fried? I've had that in Germany. And it's, I've never know, had them fried, but I have been baking them recently. And they're, okay. they're very good. It makes them quite sweet. Uh, yeah, yeah. Apart from the health questions, if you have it frequently, of course, but it is very good, unbelievable. Anyway, um, I'm going to have to take a break here. We've got a, um, an advertisement. I'm, this is Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. I'm speaking with Dr. Sue Stewart Smith. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also The Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now 
to take back your life. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. So in your book, you mention how people with addictions have been greatly helped to reconnect with society and open themselves to others through gardening. And as a consequence, becoming more functional at, at the same time. They seem to relearn community involvement by choosing, as you mentioned, generativity over stagnation. Is this an approach that's gaining popularity as it clearly makes uh, perfect sense to me and uh, uh, to emphasize self-help techniques and functionality? Or are there still a lot of the usual administrative, financial and social barriers that you find? Well, I think... You know, these things vary enormously, and I can only comment on what's happening in the UK. Right. Um, There are some excellent programs here, and there is uh, a growing movement for something called social prescribing, um, which is actually often more more targeted at, at people suffering from conditions such as chronic pain rather than addictions. Mm-hmm. I think. I think one has to be very. Um, clear about the sort of the longer term right. needs for people who, who are recovering from addiction. And the example that I get going to most depth uh, in my book is actually uh, an addiction treatment center in Italy called mm-hmm. San Patrignano, where the program is, is a two and a half to three year long program uh, and gardening is one one strand of it. You know, not everybody there gardens, but everybody um, works in the community and learns a new skill for the for the for the duration of their time there. Uh, and I think what came across to me so strongly in visiting San Patrick Nano, which is a remarkable model and has very high success rate, was exactly exactly what you mentioned. That sort of that, that linking with the community and uh, feeling part of a group. And it, took, it takes many of the people attending it quite a long time to reach that point. Mm-hmm. But I think through gardening as well and through, through other activities in that community where people feel they are, they're doing something constructive that contributes to the, to the, to the running of the community, um, and, and, and helps the place thrive in various ways and, and things that they can be proud of. That's, that's enormously important in terms of rebuilding self-esteem and helping, helping people, I suppose, shift away from, from feeling um, that they've become a bit of an outcast, actually. Uh, uh, but it's very, I think, so I think, Returning to something that is health-giving, that is nourishing, which fundamentally gardening is and growing food is particularly so, uh, can be very, very helpful. But I just don't think one can um, simplify it and say gardening is certainly not a cure for addictions because so much else happens really around 
for example, in that community, you know, so much is about the caliber of the staff who run who run the run the programs there um, and the boundaries that they're able to set. So, so it's you know, when one's talking about therapeutics, you have to always remember there's a very important human element that that facilitates it yes. um, and allows nature to do to to do its stuff you know, to exert that influence. But it doesn't happen if you just put somebody in a garden. No, no. And I think the follow-up plan is meaningful work. But I think it's a wonderful segue to go into back into society, which a person who so has been in social exile, so to speak, will initially regard with at least anxiety and suspicion. And I just sense, you know, from from uh, work up, you know, um, read about and that, that that it's a good it's a good turning point for the person they interact because I, I also know over the years patients have said they go to farmers markets because everyone's so nice it's mm-hmm. also the produce is secondary because why well why because the focus is on the produce and one is less judgmental about other people less likely to notice that they're using um verbiage that irritates one or you know how people are tend to be more language sensitive these days so I, I think that um, my, my gut feel uh, is that this is something that if one could put on the meaningful work post-treatment, you know, is, is so important to get them to the stage where they open up to the possibility. Yeah, this- and it's enormously helpful for self-esteem. Yes. You can see what you've produced and uh, you can feel proud of it. And there's a great deal of, conviviality in gardening um, and and a great shared pleasures, actually, shared pleasures, which are very bonding, very connecting um, yes. and share just simple sharing food, you know. Yes. Uh, yes. It's, it's, it's these are very basic things, but they're, they're fundamentally reinforcing in, in a very positive way. And leading on, on to, to that and uh, tied to it in my mind, the rehabilitative effect on prison inmates, many of whom have defaulted into criminal activity because of initial social difficulties, often owing to learning disorders at school or poor parent, parenting, as, as you point out, the, the learning dis- disability, the disorders. Now, that took me back to my school days, which is a long time ago, and where teaching had a, a, a humiliation was part of the tools that some teachers employed to sort of get the information in. That's, that's, you know, one hopes that this has disappeared completely. So we had, to, we had to, in order to pass the standard, be proficient in two approved languages. And some people struggled. They weren't language-oriented. They'd have their essay, their, bad, their poor essay read to other classmates, you know, sort of like, look how bad this is. I know it sounds, it'll sound very strange to younger ears these days, and that's a good thing. But it, it, it struck me how early on the dread, you know, for these people who were in, affected badly or negatively by this, particularly negatively, the amount of dread they had coming to school, knowing that this was going to happen. And you can easily see a child at the wrong, or anybody at the wrong stage of their life, and is there ever a right stage, being so badly traumatized by this over time that they just kind of give up 
on society. Their expectations become so low. Uh, do you feel this is an overstatement, perhaps, or? No, I don't think it's an overstatement. But I, I and I think, and what you say absolutely resonates with with, um, with my own experience of of talking to to prisoners and also young people. I mean, I, I describe a number of projects working with either young offenders or at-risk kids um, who have almost given up on feeling that they can do anything worthwhile. Right. Nobody's ever going to say well done to them. Uh, and that can change in the garden very, very quickly, you know, within a matter of months. People mm-hmm. see... Uh, see what they've grown and other people can say oh wow you know you did that Um, and and that's that's very important I think and I I sort of think although gardening can be intimidating to people who've never gardened provided they're given the right help in getting going it's actually fairly straightforward and um, so once people have got a little bit of confidence uh, I, I see gardening as a very accessible activity and, and you know, there are all sorts of other potential remedial activities, creative activities, uh, but, but the difference with, with gardening is that we're, we don't have to bring all the creativity to it. No. You know, I, I, see, I see gardening as a coming together of human creativity on the one hand and nature's creativity on the other and and we we are fostering nature's creativity we are um nourishing it and nurturing it and allowing it to unfold allowing it to happen but at the same time we can look at the outcome and feel really you know really really proud or really pleased with ourselves um and and as a group you know people can can do that share you know share share the joy in it mm-hmm. so you know, and of course, there are ups and downs. There are things that go wrong as well. And I, I, I think that's actually another great strength of gardening is that, you know, is that you're not in control all the time. And that's that's a- the other side of it, of it not all being, you know, about, about working with nature's creativity, mm-hmm. um, is, is that you have to work with that, those growth forces and nature's, you know, the other, the other side of that, the you know, various forces of, uh, destruction and decay and so on, and um, and you know you, you you learn actually as a gardener. I think it can help make people a bit more resilient uh, yeah. about setbacks in life um, sure. because you you sort of learn then you know okay well I'll try again. You know you have you have the following season and that can be enormously mm-hmm. helpful. You can think oh it didn't work this year but I can try again next year. You know it's not like it's all or nothing. Uh, you get another chance. Um, and with any luck, something will have turned out well. I, I just think you have to hedge your bets a bit in the garden. And, and some things may be thriving, even if others, others aren't. Yeah. I just While you were talking, I think it's a wonderful confidence builder because uh, building exercise, because um, not to be too irreverent, but we do our things, thing, but we're surfing on an award-winning template that's proven. So we've been carried in a way as well. And the collaboration, I just think, is is a great segue to towards more confidence. And it's just another way of saying it, I guess. Um, Sue, I was most interested 
in the comments you made on the book about cyclical or cyclical versus linear time, the former, of course, being a more ancient way that we appreciate a time and that this is reflected in our own our old uh, legends, myths, and stories. Now, the common lament we hear today is that there is never enough time. I'm old enough to remember quite a few years ago when we were promised that with all the anticipated advances in technology, we might even get to a stage where we wouldn't know what to do with all our free time. <laughs> never mind the fact that most physicians or many physicians around the world now complain that technology is the greatest stress or one of the greatest stresses. I do believe that how we approach time and utilize it is something that, although very rarely mentioned in medicine, in fact, I'm trying to think of a single time it's been mentioned at all, it surely deserves attention. I mean, it's the currency of life in one, in one way of looking at it. And perhaps gardening is the vehicle that best illustrates this issue. If you I agree. I, uh, I agree with you completely about that. I think it's it's absolutely central to um, the beneficial effects of gardening, and many different levels. Actually, um, you know, there's this the I suppose the the more mindful aspect mm-hmm. of gardening. You know, the the sort of meditative quality of weeding and um, setting out seedlings and so on. Uh, you know, these rhythmical repetitive tasks uh, that really hold us in the present moment and we become absorbed in get into a state of flow uh, and sort of, you know, feel suspended in time in a, in a very pleasurable way, a very replenishing way. Yes. Uh, but gardening is also intrinsically forward-looking mm-hmm. and that's enormously important um, for mental health uh, because uh, you know, if you're suffering from anxiety, if you're depressed, uh, if you're recovering from a trauma, um, struggling with an illness, the future is enormously problematic often. Uh, it may be hard to imagine it or certainly hard to think about it in any positive way. Yes. And and gardening, you know, just the simple act of sowing seeds, here we are at spring, you know, uh, the simple act of sowing seeds, you're immediately, part of your mind is projecting three or four months ahead, you know, anticipating the enjoyment of whether, whether it's the flowers or, or, the, or the produce you're going to harvest. Uh, and it was really no accident that, that, you know, the beginning of the pandemic two years ago, there was a run on seeds. Because everybody, everybody's future was suddenly very problematic. You know, everybody's plans were cancelled. We were all really frightened. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was, and there was a great deal of, of loss and uh, distress and isolation and mm-hmm. separation. So, so people, it's no accident that people turned to gardening in that way. Um, and as you intimate, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not only the kind of three months ahead, it's, it's beyond that. It's feeling part of this, um, this cycle, uh, the sort of turning wheel of time. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, so much of contemporary life with our gadgets and our gizmos and our, our you know, 24-hour shopping and, you know, 
lights everywhere, streets and uh, in shopping yes. centers and so on. Um, you know, we have slipped away from the basic mm-hmm. biological rhythms of life. And gardening, gardening does return you to that. It puts you in touch with it in a very direct way. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing. You have to do things at the right time of year. And that, that actually, that is a great antidote for procrastination. Absolutely. Because the, the drawback of, of living in a society where you could sort of do anything at any time of day or any time in the year almost is that you can endlessly put it off and think you'll do it another day. Whereas there comes a point in the garden where, oh, the window of time for, you know, sowing my seeds or, you know, uh, pruning my, my uh, fruit trees or whatever it is, is, is about to disappear and I need to get out and do it. And that, that, I find that personally very helpful. It sometimes it galvanizes me. It gets me out there. And, uh, and I know many, many other people feel the same thing. One can say that mercifully virtual gardening is not an option. I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, although, you know, v- virtual nature, the effects of virtual nature are not to be knocked either. And no, I think no, the, the people the, who are in hospital yes. um, or who can't get outside, Actually, you know, the research shows that, um, see, you know, beautiful scenes of nature uh, right. do affect uh, things like levels of pain, blood pressure, feelings of stress. You know, it, it ha- they have these, these things do have a beneficial effect. Um, I also talking about, you know, not having enough time, as we did earlier, or as I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I recall, I don't know how long ago, but reading one of the last interviews um, with Graham Greene, uh, a journalist spoke to him and um, he, he was in his 80s, I think. And um, she mentioned, you know, like he had been with all the intrigue, the action, the plotting with so-and-so as his books reflect. And um, she she said to him, uh, you must be the envy, of, your life must be the envy of every adventurer on the planet. You know, you've, you've sure done a lot. I, I can't remember the exact wording. And he told her, he said, actually, he regrets having done too much. And on reflection, he would have preferred to do fewer, and this is the kicker, more meaningful things. So this headlong rush for fear of missing out, FOMO as we call it, um, is clearly, uh, well, one finds out sooner or later, it's probably not the best policy. But um, I think this is the truth with gardening as well. I'm I'm not an avid gardener. I've lived in uh, um, apartments often and townhouses. But um, I can see that, when something comes up better than expected, that memory lasts forever. Just, well, well, seemingly forever. Whereas something one might have done that appears at first glance exciting may be vague after a few years. So I found that very interesting that he had said he had done too much. He, he regretted having done, done too much. Um, the other touch in your book I have to mention is um, involved Susan Sontag, who was, of course, quite brilliant, um, and saying that we have time because not everything should happen at once and you have space because not everything should happen to you. And she also said um, interpretation 
is the revenge of the intellectuals upon art. And that's one quote I've never forgotten. So it was good to hear this idea of how memories are laid down in your book. Um, it's too lengthy to go into detail, but it's a very, uh, I think, a beautiful piece in what is an excellent book dealing with this. And I'm so glad that somebody mentioned it um, and wrote about it who also has a profound humanities education um, and experience because it's difficult to write about, I suspect. So um, thank you for that as well. Oh, thank you, Trevor. I'm very touched by your, by your words. Well, yeah, it's sincere because, I think you know, so often we've got these checklists. I mean, really, we, we have to be standard of care. No one's going to argue with that. The, the, the regulatory colleges, the authorities we deal with who fund the show, whatever, it, whomever they are, we've got uh, the legal side, you know, what, if you get dragged up in front of court, what it, you know, how, how badly are you going to get discredited, this kind of thing. And yet the bread and butter stuff, uh, the everyday stuff. I mean, whatever we do every day is extremely significant, even if it lasts five minutes. So this remains untouched as if it's in a different box or silo. And 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 I think these. this is what HealthScape is trying to do as well, ask the questions that don't get asked because you cannot fit it into an outrageously short uh, um you know, consultation time. And, and obviously, realistically, consultation times cannot be endless either for both the patient and the, and the physician's uh, benefit, uh, you know, well-being. So um, I, I'm, I'm really glad about it. Uh, we have just a few minutes left. Um, I often hear that people who write books are sometimes, uh, well, surprised by joy as well, but they're surprised by an insight that they didn't quite fully appreciate they had. And in writing the book, all the concentration, reflection, uh, toil, and no doubt rumination became obvious. Is there anything that struck you as, aha, this is good. I knew this, but I'm writing it down now. Uh, there was no one thing uh-huh. like that, but there is, I think, something in the, there was something in the process that was enormously helpful. And changed me and I think it actually links to exactly what you were talking about just now Um, because I wanted to you know sort of plumb the depths in myself and and -hmm. also understand uh, you know uh, the process of gardening and how it affected me and I I I gardened in a in a much more um connected way in a much more thoughtful way and and I realized that often when I was gardening before I was sort of uh, getting through the tasks you know I was kind of doing the jobs um uh you know if you like sort of almost like the checklist you know oh I've weeded that bed I've done that I've done that um and that was something it became I suddenly realized how much um how important it is really in the garden to 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 keep in balance these two ways of being, of you know, doing on the one hand, which right. is you know, throwing yourself into the work in the garden is absolutely part of it. Absolutely. But but actually, just having time to be, to be in and with nature, and 
to to really feel a sense of connectedness um and and tune in you know to 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 listen to notice the the light or the hear the sound of the wind in the trees whatever it is um so i think i got a lot out of that and and i might have sort of carried on gardening in a more frenetic way otherwise well, you, you had, it sounds like to me like you had time to catch, not catch your breath, not that one gardens furiously, but I think standing as an observer, which is through writing, you, you possibly savored a lot of what you reflected mm, yeah. on. I'm sure you savored a lot, but you also, it, it's very grounding. And I think laying down something in language is a completely different, a, a new layer that reinforces visual, spatial, spatial memory and so forth, and temporal memory. So um, uh, that is uh, just such a wealth of this book. I mean, I, uh, if I had the stamina, I could do three hours. Uh, its book goes on and on. And, um, you know, the metaphor is, it, it's a wonderful metaphor for so many things, as we know. Um, Sue, Dr. Stuart Smith, thank you so much for your insights experience and the obvious passion that you have both for gardening and for mental health. It was a privilege and absolutely brilliant treat. Thank you again. Oh, thank you, Trevor. I've really enjoyed our conversation tonight. Oh, that's good to hear. This is Dr. Trevor Campbell, host at Healthscape, speaking with Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith on her book, The Well Garden Mind, an excellent read. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.